Hello, and welcome to episode 96 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and this week I'm very excited to talk to the author of a new book, which we'll talk about in a moment. His name is Dave Seminara. Hi there, Dave. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on your program. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. Um, Dave is the author of the new book, Footsteps of Federer, A Fan's Pilgrimage Across Seven Swiss Cantons in Ten Acts. That book is coming out next week on Tuesday, and I noticed on Amazon it is already the number one new release in Switzerland travel guides. So those of you who are interested in Switzerland travel guides, it's clearly the number one pick in that department. He also is a journalist writing for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and so on, and has written one of my favorite newspaper pieces ever about tennis, which we're going to get into later. But because most of you are probably more interested in Roger Federer than about long rallies in 1984, uh, we will start with the footsteps of Federer. And Dave, one thing that I fascinates me so much about this book is that it is built around a pilgrimage, and you're probably not the first tennis fan to think about going on a pilgrimage uh, to honor the great Roger Federer, but you're the only one who's written about it, and even more generally than Roger Federer, there's not really much of a genre of tennis travel books. I mean, tennis players are traveling all the time, tennis fans are traveling to tournaments, um, and all that's happening, but no one's really writing about it. And I'm just curious about this notion of, 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 of pilgrimage. Is this like I mean, how, how do you think about this? Like, what are, you, what are you trying to accomplish by writing a book that puts you on the road to learn more about your tennis hero? Well, it gave me an opportunity to merge my two passions in life, which is travel and, and tennis. So I've been a tennis player since I was a little boy, and I've been a traveler my whole life, too. I call myself, sometimes I call myself a pathological traveler because um, it is sort of a compulsion for me, which has made the lockdown really, really hard. But um, when I had an opportunity to do this trip before the and I should mention, too, that, of course, this this trip occurred in October of 2019 and was built around the uh, the Swiss indoors tournament. I, you know, I jumped at the chance to do this. And of course, I had no idea that borders were going to be closing around the world a few months later. But, yeah, it was an opportunity um, to merge really my two passions in life. And I'm not quite sure why there aren't more tennis travel logs out there, because it is sort of, I think, a natural fit. Definitely. Like the, the only tennis travel book I can think of that I, other than yours that I know of is playing the Moldovans at tennis. Oh yeah. That's a great book. That's hilarious. I love that book. It is. It's a fantastic book. And, uh, and aside from the fact that both are enjoyable reads, I don't think there's a lot of common threads between the two. But um, <laughs> one thing that I, I, I kept thinking about is that the one place that tennis fans go on pilgrimage is Wimbledon. And I mean, it's, it's sort of like, Cooperstown for tennis fans. I mean, baseball people know what I mean, talking about the Hall of Fame. But there really isn't anything else. And f for you, for this book, um, San Jakob's Halle in Basel, the, the site of the Swiss indoors tournament, had to take that place. And it's, I've been there. I was at the tournament the year before you were. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not a likely site for pilgrimage, but it kind of focused as the centerpiece for your book. Right. No, I mean, um, for me, it really, that wasn't, I would say, you know, my number one target. I have been to Wimbledon before and I absolutely love Wimbledon. I've been there three times. So for me, really what I wanted to do the most was really understand and learn more about Roger and to see where he lived as a little boy. I wanted to see the club where he played at. I want to see the places where he goes to practice. I want to see the place where he got married. And I ended up seeing so many more places, too, to really try to understand more about him and to and to visualize all of that. And, and going to St. Jacob's Hall was important, too, not because of really the venue itself, but because it's Roger's hometown tournament, because he's won it 10 times now. I saw him win it the 10th time. But because, you know, he's he grew up a bike ride away from it and because his, he was a ball boy there as a kid. So the tournament is special to him and it means a lot. But I wouldn't by any means say that, you know, that, that the arena itself is necessarily you know a highlight it's sort of an ordinary arena but seeing him in his on his home turf where he's absolutely revered you know was pretty special as well is it that different from i mean it seems like at wimbledon he's revered um cincinnati weirdly enough he's he's revered i've heard people say you know this is a federer town like is it in a is it a whole nother level in basel Yes and no. I mean, say one of the things that I learned from my trip, which which was most surprising, the the only the, the previous international trip I took before this one, Jeff, was, was to Colombia, and I think I wrote in the book that I saw more RF hats in Colombia than I did in Switzerland, and that really is not an exaggeration. And um, 
I think that was sort of the surprising thing is that the Swiss don't have the same sort of hero worship and um, they don't they don't worship athletes in the same sort of way that we do, I think, in America and in other parts of the world. So I think that was one surprising thing. I mean, obviously, he gets an extremely warm reception there and the crowd goes nuts and such like that. But I wouldn't say it's like, you know, for those uh, Federer fans who have never been to Switzerland, I wouldn't say you're going to go to the country and just see people with Federer hats everywhere. And it's 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 really not like that. The Swiss have a different sort of mentality towards towards their sporting heroes, for sure. Yeah, that's, it's, I did notice what you wrote about the RF hat, and I had the exact same experience. I wore my RF hat to Switzerland, and I don't remember whether I kept it on for the whole trip, but I, I definitely noticed the fact that no one seemed to notice, not a lot of people seemed to be wearing them. And by contrast, when I took a train to, to Belgrade later the same year, I was wearing an RF hat on the train, and this old woman who barely spoke any English just came up to me and kind of shook her fist and said, not Federer, Novak. So <laughs> I, I got something from my summer wearing an RF hat, but, but not in Switzerland. Um, and another thing about the sort of the, the genre of, of travel or pilgrimage books that I thought was interesting was something that was, was missing from yours in, in that I kept expecting like chapter six or chapter seven, you were going to introduce us to some super fan and we were going to get like the, the, the sort of creepy collector who had, every I don't there's no baseball cards just because they Roger Federer baseball cards but you know who had all the memorabilia and knew every match result and and maybe this this was a decision on your part not to go down this road or maybe this sort of stuff doesn't really exist but I mean that was that seems to speak to what you're what you're talking about that Switzerland isn't really like that so is that is that a reflection of the Swiss fans or is that a choice you made not to you know pursue the any crazy Federer fans except it's for a, you know, maybe yourself it's a really, it, you know, it's a really good question, actually, and it's it's interesting that you asked me that because I actually just wrote two stories for the ATP Tour website about super Federer fans, obsessive Federer fans, which I think is going to come out right around the time when he makes his comeback. But I would say that if you and I, so I've actually researched the world of extreme Federer fans. I mean, I'm a I'm a big Federer fan, but I'm not as obsessive and crazy as other fans. Um, a couple of the fans that I actually just wrote about are the type of people who go to Wimbledon and they actually camp out in the tents for, for the entire fortnight. And they will actually wait outside arenas for him for two, three, four, five hours just to take his picture. I'm not, I'm not that much of an obsessive stalker. Um, the reason, there's a couple different reasons why I did not um, profile any other obsessive fans in there is, first of all, um, I was just incredibly busy going to all the places that I did go to there on the trip. So I didn't have time. To, I was so busy pursuing people who knew Roger, who had connections to Roger and going to all the clubs where he's been to that I really just did not have time to try to seek out, you know, obsessive fans. And then also the other thing too, is that I found that the really obsessive, crazy Federer fans are not in Switzerland. Um, some of them do definitely come to that tournament because he usually meets with his fan club there in Basel. So I would say you find the loudest people in the arena and the really obsessive people who are painting their faces and all of that. Nine out of 10 of those people are actually not Swiss. So, you know, if you wanted to really profile obsessive Federer fans, like for example, the two women whom I just profiled, one of them is from India and the other happens to be from Belgium. So, you know, Roger is like, he's very Swiss in some ways, but he's not, there are ways that he definitely parts from the Swiss. And, you know, he's, you know, as you know, he's like a global, he's really an international phenomenon. And I would, I would venture and what I learned about Roger and, and about Swiss culture for my trip is that, you know, Roger can walk down the street in the small towns where he owns homes and people are not even going to mob him for autographs. I mean, you might get a couple people taking a picture of him or waylaying him, but he would be mobbed much more in Bogota or Buenos Aires or Beijing or many other places around the world. He can walk around pretty much unmolested oftentimes in Switzerland. Yeah, that and that, that's remarkable to think about having been in some of the other, pla other places where you know it's not going to happen. Um, so so your follow-up book can be in the footsteps of Federer fans, which will <laughs> I like that. cross a lot more borders. I like uh, that idea. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, a fun trip. That could be a whole series. I mean, go around the sure. world chasing down crazy Yankee fans. Um, I mean, sure. yeah, that would require spending a lot of time talking to Yankee fans, but, you know, Something along those lines. Uh, so you just said that that Federer is, in some ways, he's very Swiss. In some way, he ways he's not. And it sounds mm -hmm. like I mean, most of what you've talked about so far is how some of the, how the Swiss fans are different from the non-Swiss fans. But how how do you think of Roger himself as being not typically Swiss? Yeah, that's a good question too. I'm glad you followed up on that because 
in the way that I think he's not typically Swiss is that, you know, and again, this is national stereotyping. So I'm not going to say that every person in Switzerland follows the stereotype, just like not all Americans follow American stereotypes. But I would say that he's not quite as stoic or stiff, stiff, stiff upper lip as as the typical Swiss uh, would would be necessarily. So, for example, any Federer fan knows how often he cries on court after a match and he shows his emotions and he wears his heart on his sleeve. And when we saw this, I saw this in Basel when he won his 10th, uh, when he won his 10th Swiss indoors, he broke down crying during the trophy presentation. I think that that is not typically Swiss. And in fact, um, you know, one of the people whom I met with uh, is her name is Madeline Barlocker. She was the director of the junior tennis program at the tennis club, old boys, which is where Roger really learned the game from about age eight, I believe until 14. And she was the director of the junior tennis program. And when she was telling me, she you know, walked me over to the court that's now called Roger Federer court. And she said, you know, I still have memories of Roger sitting here on this court crying after, after he would lose for a half hour or an hour, all the other boys would be in the canteen having their sandwiches and Roger would still be here crying on the court. And the way she retold the stories is that this is unusual, meaning that she doesn't have a lot of boys who would spend an hour crying on the court like Roger did. So I think that, um, you know, for sure, he's, he's, he's not stoic. You wouldn't say that about him. Um, and I think that's sort of the most obvious one that jumps out off the top of my head. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I have sort of a, a, a pet theory. Maybe you have a have, will have an opinion on this. And it, it comes purely from a, a, a sample of two of Roger and Bjorn Borg, having watched these documentaries and movies about Borg and McEnroe, that Bjorn Borg was very similar in that he was very passionate about winning and losing to the point of you know, violence and storming off the court after matches when he was a kid and he overcame it. I mean, more than Roger did, obviously. He was known for, known for his stoicism. And it kind of seems like that's the, the characteristic of the absolute greatest, that they have this underlying passion that they've somehow managed to bottle up. And besides Borg, it seems like maybe Roger Federer is the embodiment of that, that he's, there's something going on beneath the surface that occasionally creeps out with the, the post-match tears, but he's, I mean, he, he manages to, to keep it below the surface and he's so calm most of the time. Right, but that's what makes it even more remarkable. And I have to say, as I wrote in the book, um, I love the, the fact that Roger, you know, will break down in tears because it, it, it shows you how much he loves and how much he cares about the sport. It's not just a, you know, every tournament, it's not just another tournament to him. It's not like, oh, I already have, I've already won 103 tournaments and I already have a hundred million dollars in the bank. It's every match means something to him out there. And also, you know, when I asked, I had a chance to ask him in the press conference after he won the tournament, you know, why did he break down in tears? What was it about, you know, that event that really you know, shook him up. And he talked about on, under what occasions it causes him to cry. And he said that one of the things is the way the crowd responds. And it's he really, when he feels the love from the crowd, that is emotional for him. I mean, he really appreciates it. He's not like a, you know, the kind of star who takes the adulation for granted. I feel like he actually really appreciates his fans. And that's one of the things that, you know, that I learned not just on this trip, but also in interviewing these two super Federer fanatics actually just really recently is that even women who spend five hours waiting outside of an arena to see him and to have a 15 second interaction with him, they come away with that satisfied. I mean, I asked them, they said, oh, it's always worth it because Roger's always nice to us. I feel like he's a star who appreciates, he appreciates the love that we give him. Wow, that, yeah, that's that's so interesting. I, I don't tend to think about tennis players in that way. Like not, not that I disagree, just not in those terms. And I mean, the, the way you're describing that makes him sound like the way people talk about Bill Clinton. It's like the, the super politician that can have these 15 second interactions that turn someone into to being committed for life. Uh, and I, I was thinking about this since you, you talk about a couple of the press conferences you were at and Roger has such a polished public public persona and I can't help but contrast that to, to Novak Djokovic, who is is not as polished. He'll say the wrong thing. He'll be politically on the wrong side of things. He's just he's just more raw. And I mean, we can. His father's a whole nother, you know, stuff. <laughs> I got into him in the book a little bit. Yeah, it, you, your opinion about his father was was not hidden at all. Um, but I, I, get, I got the sense you're more positive about Djokovic. I mean, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And if you, if people want to be negative about Federer, they would say that he's so polished that he's he's inauthentic. He, he's not letting people in. He's just this sort of uh, media sponsor friendly creation. And it sounds like like you give him credit for more than that. 
Oh, I definitely give him credit for more than that. I mean, I, I think that, you know, sometimes the media wants Roger to be someone that he isn't. And they're disappointed if he won't say, uh, you know, if he won't get into climate change or, or, you know, political things. And I think a lot of times, you know, the, the criticism he gets in the media is, oh, my gosh, why didn't he? Like, for example, he, he took part in the, um, the Blackout Tuesday, I think it was, last year when there was a sort of global, you know, campaign to speak out against racism. And he, he participated in that, as did, you know, Novak and, and Rafa and some other people. And, uh, but then there were some members of the media and Coco Golf and a few others who said well, that wasn't enough. You know, why didn't he also, you know, link to, you know, a page for people to donate to causes? And why didn't he do this or that? Or, you know, I think that, um, I think that Roger has tried to maintain neutrality on a lot of different issues. And I think that's very, that, and then you asked me about which ways is he Swiss and which ways isn't he Swiss. I think Roger's sort of Swiss neutrality. I think it's not a media creation or an effort to, um, you know, to please the sponsors or anything. I think it's actually genuine. You know, I talked to, for example, like Renee Stouffer, who's uh, his biographer, who's written now two biographies of him and has covered him since he was 18 years old. And he said that he really thinks that actually that that sort of neutrality and him staying out of controversy and such is, is sort of who he is. It's not like he has super strong opinions on politics and other sort of issues. And he just he'd love to express them, but he's afraid that, you know, Credit Suisse is going to cancel his contract. Um, he's he's an athlete, first and foremost. And I think that um, that he kind of likes to leave it at that. And I think that if you ask him questions about tennis, which is, you know, his profession, after all, he doesn't hold back. I mean, he'll give you he'll give you pretty detailed opinions about anything in the world of tennis. But yeah, if you get into sort of the controversial political stuff, he he doesn't he doesn't go there. But you know, I, I'm okay with that. I know a lot of other people would like him to to get into the more controversial issues of the day. But I'm okay with that. Letting athletes basically just be athletes. Yeah, certainly if if they want to be, it seems like. Like there's there's two extremes where the one extreme is that athletes are told to stay in their lane, and the other extreme is that they're expected to speak out on everything. And there must be a happy medium in there, especially for people who focus their lives on tennis and don't engage with the issues that much. Um, like it sounds like like he doesn't. Um, so as as we we follow you on this journey around Federer's childhood and background, it. I noticed that a lot of the information that you you pieced together to figure out where to go, what was what was worthy of a visit, very little of it seemed to come directly from Federer. Some of it came from Renee Stauffer, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it came from kind of from other interviews you'd done. Like you, you had you talked to a player who was a Davis Cup player in Liechtenstein. So I mean, you have various <laughs> you have various ends to the story that most people wouldn't think to pursue. Um, but I was struck by how little of it. How, how rarely you could say, you know, Roger once mentioned that he did this, so I followed that lead. Do you think that tells us something about him, too, that he he isn't really talking about his past that much unless, unless yes. somebody talk, asks him about the t time he was double bageled? Yes, this is, a, this is a very good question. You're right. Um, that's, that's actually very true. He doesn't like to reveal a lot of – there are certain – you know, again, and this is an area where I think he is very typically Swiss because Switzerland, uh, people really value privacy. And um, I do think that Roger, for example, I asked him in one of the press conferences because I wanted more leads for where he likes to practice. He, no, he does not. He does not want us to know where he practices because he doesn't want 500 people showing up at the practice courts to watch him practice. So those kind of things I had to figure out on my own. Um, I also think, too, it was very telling, too, that, you know, I had just been at the old boys club where he spent several formative years of his life, which is literally five minutes away from the arena. And I asked him, you know, when was the last time you were there? And do you get back there often? He hadn't been back there in years. And he comes to this tournament every year. And so that is interesting also. Um, he's not someone, I suppose, to really dwell in the past, is he? And I think that also it's just, uh, it is sort of, you know, indicative of his character. I guess he's more of a forward-thinking person. I guess he's not really into the, the trips down memory lane. And he values his privacy. So he's not going to be someone who says, Oh yes, yesterday I ate lunch at wherever. You know, he, he's not going to document his life on social media that way. And when he posts photos of himself practicing, he doesn't geotag it for you so you can figure out where he is. Yeah, that, you can understand why he does that, even with the even with the Swiss reputation for valuing his privacy. Um, since you mentioned this, the old boys club that's close to the the hall in Basel, and you went to. A, a, a lot of the clubs in Switzerland. I, I noticed one of the blurbs for your book was from Cliff Drysdale, who 
who mentioned that it brought back memories for him, from for him of uh, playing in German league, going to these small clubs around Germany, and it, it's it's a it's a foreign world to me. I wish I could say there were all these these nice homey tiny tennis clubs dotted around Norway, and there aren't. But it seems like that's true of Germany, true of Switzerland, maybe further. I feel like that might be true of France. Do you have a sense of like your experience of the Swiss tennis club scene, like? How much can we generalize that across Europe and how much of it is just Switzerland being its own unique thing? Well, I can't comment on every every country in Europe, but what I can tell you about Switzerland is when you travel around to all these tennis clubs, and I also went to what they call the House of Tennis, which is where the Swiss Federation uh, has, does all the training for its really promising juniors. And um, Roger was there. It's, an, it's a newer facility. I believe he was there for about a year or so, but previous to that, he, their facility was in Ecublens, which is a town nearby where it is now. But you can really get a sense for how Switzerland has a great setup to develop champions. And that's not to say that there's going to be another Roger Federer who's going to come from Switzerland next year or in five years or ever again. But it's a wonderful system that they have set up. First of all, there are clubs all over the country. My God, there are so many of them. They're very nice places. Most of them have restaurants too. And I found one, you know, for, for travelers out there, Switzerland's obviously a very country, expensive country to visit. One delightful little unexpected travel tip I have for you is that sometimes tennis clubs are the cheapest place that you can eat in town. And that doesn't mean that they're cheap, but they're comparatively cheap. Let's put it that way. Um, and there's all these wonderful tennis clubs and they compete against each other. They have a, um, an interleague where the clubs compete against each other, and it's very competitive, and they have a very well-organized national system to identify juniors from a young age. And so getting to like travel in Roger's footsteps, you know, I, I got to see, for example, his childhood neighborhood, and then to talk to his first coaches and to say, oh, okay, well, how did he get back and forth from the club? And I could see like, oh, he rode his bike. Okay. And then, you know, I would walk those same steps and be like, okay, I can see that he had this wonderful tennis club, which was a five minute bike ride from his house. And here's where he lived. And you could really visualize how his success happened. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting, especially coming from an American perspective, because I mean, how many, how many kids, even super tennis prospects are, are biking to and from the courts? None, I, I would venture. Yeah, it's got to be close to none. And I mean, and that's even setting aside the kids who are who are heading off to you know, national camps or development centers and like just living a whole tennis focused life that, it, that Federer didn't really do. Um, I mean, did, did you dig in? This didn't come up much in the book, but did you dig into what else Federer was doing before he became 100% tennis? Because you hear sometimes that he was a promising uh, soccer player, but... I feel like that's the extent of my knowledge of Roger Federer pre age 18. Did you learn more beyond that about what he was up to in those days? Uh, well, you know, uh, one of my sources, and by the way, too, I want a, a word about sources from your previous question of how did I find information because it didn't come from Roger. One of the really cool things that I found about Switzerland was that, um, well, two things. First of all, it's a small enough country that you just accidentally find out things. And I had a couple of wonderful just little coincidences where you just you, you, you meet people and you find out things just because it's sort of a small country and the tennis world is a small place. And a couple of just real small, quick examples of that is one, I, you know, it was a pilgrimage. So I wanted to start my journey at the most famous uh, pilgrimage site in the country, which is Einsiedeln Abbey, which has been a place of pilgrimage uh, for more than a thousand years there. And I started wanted to start the pilgrimage there. So I contacted the Abbey to see would I be able to meet with one of the monks there to receive, you know, a blessing or to meet them and to find out about the place. And um, they thought that I was contacting them because I knew that their abbot was a Federer. Now, Federer, I should say, is not a common name in Switzerland. So for the fact that the abbot of this monastery, his name is Federer, is quite a coincidence. So they thought I was contacting him for that reason. And I wasn't. I did not know that. And they then they further told me that also he baptized Roger's children. So... And I had a couple of other things like that happen. I was at a tennis club in another part of Switzerland too. And a guy came off the court who I just struck up a conversation with. And he's like, well, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I was Roger and Mirka's dentist. Oh, really? Okay. And these kinds of things. And I, and, I, and I was in a hotel one time and I bumped into his father, Robert and the twins and just things like that happen in Switzerland. So part of it is like, I did a ton of research, but then also while I was there, just, there were just a number of just remarkable and fun little coincidences where I met people connected to him. And regarding the sports, I'll just say, I don't want to completely avoid your question. I did have, what reminded me of this was I had a city council person in Munchenstein. Munchenstein is the suburb of Basel where Roger grew up. He took me on sort of a walking tour of the area and he showed me Roger's childhood home and such. And it took me all around the area. And right at the foot of Roger's block, there are some ping pong courts. 
I guess, table tennis, they'd call it there. And so that was really cool. So I thought, ah, Roger had these, you know, and they're old. You can tell they've been there for a very long time. So he had ping pong courts right at the foot of his um, street. And this guy, he happened to, his children, uh, one of them went to school in, in the same school as Roger. And he said that, um, and his kids were competitive table tennis players. And he said that his kids used to play um, tennis, uh, table tennis against Roger when they were kids in school. And he said that Roger was also a very good table tennis player. So I didn't find anything about his, so about his soccer skills, but he was also, not surprisingly, also good at table tennis too. Well, a very small subset of my listeners will be excited to know that Roger's now like a prime prospect for at least two of the sports, four sports in racket lawn. We just need to get the, the squash and the badminton and, and, and Roger's set to, to go in a second career. Um, so you, you have, you make a few kind of, uh, side comments about the pre-match interviews at the, the Basel tournament. And I think that y your view is not in the minority that on-court pre-match interviews are a terrible idea and worthless and not insightful. Um, since, since, since you've come to that conclusion and you do think about better questions later on, do you think there's any, any saving the pre-match interview? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, because if you were, I don't think you were in charge. Could 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 you salvage the pre-match interview? I probably could, but the players would hate me because I'd ask really weird, off-the-wall questions, which is the kind of stuff that I asked Roger when I had the chance to. That I was I was actually the only accredited media at the tournament whose first language was English, and they always start with English. So I was the one who had the first crack at asking questions every every day at the tournament. And I think by the end of it, Roger, when 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 I'd get called on, would be like, "Oh boy, what what what's this guy gonna, gonna ask me?" Because I I was asking somewhat off oddball questions. Like for example, I asked him if he saw the Rocky uh, movie. And I wasn't sure. I was sure hoping that he had, because otherwise my question wouldn't have made sense. But so I asked him the day before the final um, if he'd seen the Rocky movies, and he said, "Yeah, that he had." And I said, "Well, if you were going to take a you know a jog like the way that Rocky did before his you know before his fights around the streets of Philadelphia, where would your jog be, and what would be the reaction of people?" And you know, I, and I asked strange questions like that. So I would do a pre-match interview and I would ask really oddball questions like that. But right as a player, you know, as a player is just about to take the court and is about to start a match, I don't think they, I don't think they want to be asked those sorts of questions to be honest. They just want it to be over as quickly as possible. That, yeah, it seems like there, there probably is no salvaging and certainly not, not, not with questions like yours, you would not make a lot of friends. Um, so this, this gets a little bit into you know, how the sausage is made in, in travel books in general. And I've been wanting to ask this question of someone who would know for a while. So, so you found a lot of interesting people to talk to. You know, uh, I think pretty much every chapter is built around one person who's at least tangentially connected to Federer that you, that you met, who gave you some time, who showed you a club, who, whatever. Um, which which makes it super interesting because nobody else is doing that. You're not going to get these stories from from any source other than your book. And I, I realize you've got the the New York Times as a credential, so you can say you know you've got this connection. People know what that is around the world. But in, it it makes it sound sometimes like as soon as you declare that you're a travel writer and you you're going to be doing something like this, that all the world's doors open to you. And it can't really be like that. I mean, can you give me a sense of like? for every person who you know spent the day driving you around like how many people are there who don't answer or sort of give you the brush off like how much work does it take to put that sort of thing together it takes a lot of a lot of work to put that put put this stuff together especially if you want to play tennis with people which was part of my part of my story too i didn't just want to interview people i actually wanted to play some tennis and that was part of my story and um, i had identified i think it was 14 or 15 tennis clubs around the country and, um, you know, I was emailing all of them blindly. I didn't have contacts at these tennis tournaments. I was sending emails to like info at whatever's, you know, and um, yeah, I was ignored by I was ignored by many of them, which um, which was fine. But I found I found enough people who were willing to who were willing to sort of entertain me. And I think that um, that was important, too, that I wanted to play tennis with people, the people I did make good connections to, because to me, it wasn't just like, OK, I'm here to do some sort of a quick interview and I just want like a quote from you. That wasn't what I wanted from people. You know what I mean? And um, I like to spend time with people. I mean, the more time that people are willing to spend with me, the better. And the people who are willing to play tennis with me, the better. So I don't think that the people who I um, made contact with 
see me as just somebody who was there as a reporter or as an author. And I would say that I made some really good friends on this trip. And some of the people that I wrote chapters about in the book, um, I hope I'm going to be friends with for a really long time where I'm already like exchanging Christmas cards with them and really sort of getting to know these people. And uh, I think that they appreciated sort of the oddball nature of my quest. Uh, like, for example, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there's a chapter in the book about um, about Jakob Federer, who is not really related to <laughs> to, <laughs> to Roger Federer. But I sort of just picked him out of nowhere, out of the phone book, wanting to meet someone in Berneck, which is the ancestral village where the Federers come from. And um, this guy makes wine. He makes very, very tasty wine in the village where the Federers come from. And he was an amazing host. And I had had lunch with him. They showed me all around the town. I drank his wine. And um, we're friends now. So I don't think he probably sees me just as a writer or a journalist. And that's the way you know, when I'm on these sorts of trips that I like to connect with people. I like to connect with them as a, just a normal person and as a, as a traveler above all else, not, not just a writer and an author who is looking to get a quote or information from them. So as, as someone who, I know this is obviously not your first rodeo here. You've done journalism in countries all, all over the world. How, how would you compare the Swiss as, as far as like their receptiveness to you asking questions or their openness to, you know, spending time with you and developing these relationships beyond just, you know, a guy with your reporter pad out. Like how, how do the Swiss stack up as sources? Well, um, what I would say is of the people who, who entertained my inquiries, they were amazing. But of course there were, you know, 75, maybe 75% of the people I contacted never got back to me. So um, I would say of the people who were willing to, willing to humor me, they were amazing. I mean, I'll just tell you, for example, one of them, Tony Polterra, it's just a wonderful gentleman who he is, he works for the Swiss version of the BBC, but in their Romanche language broadcast, which Romanche is the fourth language of Switzerland. It's only spoken by maybe 50, 60,000 people, but he's a, he's a Romanche uh, morning radio host there. And he's also a very avid tennis player. And he's the president of one of the tennis clubs that I wanted to meet. I mean, he spent an entire day with me on his day off. I mean, he's, he, he spent an entire day together with me and we played tennis together. And um, just an amazing guy. Like I very rarely met someone who was so incredibly helpful to me as he was in any country I've ever been to in my life. Yeah, that is what, that was one of my favorite chapters. It really comes across that he is, he was such a welcoming guy and I mean, interesting in his own right, apart from his you know, minor connection to the Federer story. Um, so one thing I found interesting, having traveled to a number of tennis tournaments myself, both as a sort of media or just as a fan, like you got a lot done in a very short period of time. Uh, like obviously weren't writing oh. this whole thing on the fly, but I mean, you were a busy guy. For oh my gosh, this was not a vacation. I was so exhausted by the time this trip was over. As yeah, as is evident, like not not the exhaustion, but the fact that you're busy enough to be exhausted. And is I guess you're often going to going to tennis tournaments as media in some form or other. Like, is this a typical experience for you? Was this like a level up from your normal tennis media tournament visiting? Oh, absolutely. And this is not something that I do very frequently. You know, I have covered tournaments over the years, but I'm, you know, much more of a features writer than a reporter. So I haven't covered lots of tennis tournaments. And so, and I've never been on, been, had the luxury of being on this type of quest because the previously when I have covered tennis tournaments, you have an editor telling you, okay, cover this match or cover that match or give me a story about this person or that person. I had the luxury of just soaking in the tournament in giving the ambiance and the flavor of it. And I didn't have to worry about, you know, who won today or who lost or any of that. I was on a specific quest and it was, this is one of the most, you know, self-indulgent, wonderful trips I've ever taken in my life. I could have never done it if I hadn't been able to get, you know, an assignment, actually in this case, two assignments. I was able to get two assignments to fund this trip, which was 36 hours in, in Basel, which was already published. And then a piece that uh, is going to be in the New York times, a shorter piece, um, about my journey, but um, it was an incredibly, just an indulgent trip, an exhausting one, but also one where I would, I had the luxury of just soaking everything in. All the other reporters were there filing away stories and were really busy and I could just sit and hang out and make friends with people and listen to, and just listen to what everybody was talking about, which was a real luxury to have that reporters don't usually have. 
Yeah, definitely. I've been I've been to a couple tournaments as accredited by the Economist, which pretty much means I you know I write for them, but you know I don't have a deadline or a specific assignment with them for a, going to Indian Wells or something. So yeah, I just get to hang out, and, and I'm not sure you make a lot of friends by being the guy who gets to just hang out whenever <laughs> working so much. Um, okay, so you mentioned already that one of the best places in Switzerland to get a budget meal is at tennis clubs, which yes. Awesome pro tip. I would have never guessed that. Um, and you've done a lot of traveling, travel writing, et cetera, et cetera. Any other budget travel tips for people going to Switzerland? Uh, yes. Well, let's see. First of all, you've got to look into the different passes that they have. The Swiss travel system, they have like a Swiss pass. And especially if you enjoy public transportation. I mean, the Swiss public transportation system is second to none of any country I've traveled in in my life. I haven't been to 90 some odd countries like you have. I've been to more like 70 something, but the Swiss travel system is absolutely incredible. I find it to be, you do not need to rent a car in Switzerland at all. They have an app where you can find out, like for example, when I went to Berneck, it involved two train rides and a bus. And I went on the app, I plugged in where I was at, it detected my location. I typed in the name of the bus station in Berneck, which is a very humble little village of maybe 3,000 people near the border with Austria, far away on the other side of the country. And I, I arrived there literally to the minute of when it said I was going to. Now imagine taking two trains and a bus in some other country in the world and arriving on time. So I would say, you know, definitely look into the different options of the passes because the trains and the buses are absolutely incredible. And it includes Liechtenstein too, which is a very... Uh, interesting and tiny little country of 37,000 people. And if you buy the Swiss travel system, it includes, they don't have, the trains don't go to Liechtenstein, but they, the buses go there and includes the buses in Liechtenstein too, which is kind of a little bonus. And for people who are country collectors and want to visit every country in the world or every country in Europe or whatever, Liechtenstein is a beautiful little country. Yeah, it would be pretty silly to go to Switzerland and not pick up Liechtenstein on the way if that's... Yes if the goal is the numbers and and yeah i i did that when you mentioned going to the the sargans um train mm -hmm. station i was like yep that's where i'd switch to get on a bus and go to Liechtenstein. um so yeah that's uh, that's interesting and i'm glad you mentioned the the transit system and also the fact that the, the it's so prompt and that like one other country in the world where that is true is norway um mm. where like it, it's I mean, you could say virtually the same thing. And it's it, to some extent a Northern European thing, but I think both Switzerland and Norway are kind of on their own planet in this and mm. many other regards. I know you've been here and you've, you've written a little bit about Norway. And I'm wondering, these are two pretty unique countries that stand mm -hmm. apart from, from the rest of Europe. How, how would you compare Switzerland to Norway? You mean in terms of uh, the public transportation or the traveler experience no, I mean, in general? Yeah, the travel experience in general, whatever you want. Oh, well, I mean, just two of the most beautiful. And I think, I think, you know, if money is no object and you're not, you know, you're not a backpacker who is on a very tight budget, these are two of the best countries in the world to visit. I mean, you have everything there. First of all, you have nice people. I mean, I would say you, you, you know more about Norwegians than I do, but I found that, you know, Norwegians and Swiss, neither country, they're, they're not, you know, they're not Italians. They're not Greeks. They're not you know, they might not be the most demonstrative people, but you ask people for help. I find people to be extremely, you know, helpful and nice in, in both countries and, you know, scenery in both places. I would say that the cuisine in both places, though, is, is difficult um, to eat well, <laughs> to eat well in either country. Um, I, I, it's difficult to do so on a budget. But I would say in terms of if you want to go to countries where everything is very clean, things run on time, there's beautiful opportunities to enjoy mountains and nature and um, and you like sort of atmospheric, you know, charming towns in Norway and Switzerland are absolutely full of them. Hard to go wrong in either country, is it? Isn't it? Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I agree about the food. And part of the problem is that it, it might be hard to eat well because nobody really bothers like that's one mm -hmm. kind of jarring discovery I've made living here is like people just don't care quite as much. I mean, there are people who care. There are nice restaurants you can find. Yeah. They are expensive, but I mean, it just isn't, it isn't a priority and there isn't a sort of easy fallback national food. Like, I mean, in Italy, even if yes. people didn't care, you'd still have pasta and pizza and everybody would be happy. And, oh, yeah. oh, Jeff, I'll mention one other thing about a budget travel tip for Switzerland. Two words, yeah. donor kebabs. <laughs> I don't know how many, how many 
how many donor kebabs I had on this trip. And people think, you know, just, I, I had some expense money from the New York Times, but it, believe me, it certainly was not unlimited. So I was on a tight budget, even though um, I was there with some support. And um, I ate a lot of donor kebabs there, which are always, you know, tasty and delicious and inexpensive. So I had many, many of those and I ate at many tennis clubs. That sounds good. Well, and the, the food's not the point of the trip. So, you know, as long as you keep yourself going. Okay, so I promised we'd get back to this, and here we are. Dave wrote one of my favorite newspaper articles about tennis ever uh, back in 2009 for the New York Times. It was about the record-setting 643-shot rally uh, between Vicky Nelson-Dunbar and Gene Hefner. And the first thing I want to ask you about this, Dave, is you wrote this for the 25th anniversary, and maybe this is a little inside baseball, but... How long did you sit on this idea? I mean, you had to be you had to be planning pretty carefully to to a get this in the New York <laughs> Times at all and and to nail it on the twenty fifth anniversary. Well, this was like playing Russian roulette, to be honest with you, trying to because right having to get all of this arranged before the twenty fifth anniversary was like a a race against the clock and to place the story. And at the time, I had I had never contributed to the New York Times before. That was actually my first story that was accepted by them. And in order to try to pull that story together, what happened was. I was at um, the tournament in uh, in Cincinnati, and I saw a rally between Andy Murray and Julian Benito, which was 53 strokes. And afterwards, in the media room, someone was saying, oh, was that the longest point? And, and someone said, oh, no, that was not the longest point by a long shot. They looked it up, and they're like, oh, my gosh, the longest point was 643 shots by two women whom I've never heard of before, Gene Hefner and Vicki Nelson Dunbar. And we're like, I, first of all, immediately I said, well, who the heck are they? I don't know who they are. This happened in 1984, and I thought, that is remarkable, 643 shots. Why hasn't anyone written anything substantive on this? And I, I, At the moment, I was busy with covering the tournament, but I said, as soon as I go home, I'm figuring all of this out. So it was somewhat easy to track down Vicki Nelson. It was easy because she has a son named Jacob Dunbar, who's now, I'm just looking him up right now. He's, in, he's now on the ATP tour. Well, he, I believe he plays in futures events. He's ranked number 852 in the world. But at the time that I wrote this, he was a promising junior player. And I read an article about him somewhere that, which identified the name of the junior high school he was at. So I called the junior, the junior high school. I'm not above doing things like this. This is how I find, find people. But I called the school and they said, well, we can't connect you to him. He's a student, but we'll pass a message to him. So I said, uh, I passed a message to him saying, please have your mother call me. I really want to know more <laughs> I really would like to know more about your mom's 643 shot rally. And um, sure enough, a couple of days later, she did. However, finding Gene Hepner was much more difficult. There were like five, six, seven Gene Hepners. It's not a super common name, but there were a handful of them in the phone book in various parts of the country. So I thought, I'm just going to send a snail mail letter to all of the Gene Hepners in the country. There were, let's say, maybe six of them. And I thought, let's hope that one of these people is the Gene Hepner. And maybe a week or so after I sent the letters, I got a phone call from the Gene Hepner, who had completely dropped out of the tennis world. No one, in, no one in the world of tennis had any idea what became of Gene Hepner because she retired shortly after this remarkable rally in that match, which she lost, which, by the way, was a straight set loss of more than six hours. Um, so I was able to conduct interviews with both of them. But then there was the missing element. After I interviewed the two of them, I thought, but wait a minute. Who counted the 643 shots and how do I really verify that this actually happened? This isn't just tennis folklore because I've written other stories about tennis history where it turns out the further you dig into a story that the record books aren't even correct to begin with. So then what I did was, OK, where did the tournament happen? It happened in Richmond, Virginia. So I contacted the newspaper in Richmond, Virginia, and I said, who was the sports editor of the newspaper in 1984? And they said, oh, so and so. And he retired a long time ago, but here's his email. So I called that gentleman. I contacted that gentleman and he sure enough, you know, he called me back and he said, oh, well, the reason why I know it was 643 shots is because they had many, many rallies in that match that were hundreds of shots long. So he said, I knew it must have been some sort of a record. So I just started counting all the shots. And so I said, this is perfect. I have all of the elements of the best story that I have ever stumbled upon in my life. I've got the two women together. I've got the guy who verified all of it. All I need is somebody to publish this story. But unfortunately, by the time by the time I'd pulled all of this together, the 25 year anniversary was coming up like in a matter of days. And at the time I had, you know, I had just left the Foreign Service. I was a diplomat, which was my previous career. And I was just getting into journalism. I didn't have any contacts. I didn't know how to contact The New York Times, but I thought the story was worthy of them. So what I did was 
I sent a snail mail letter to Tom Jolly because, again, I didn't know what his email address was. I sent a snail mail letter to him, and um, not surprisingly, he did not respond. At least for several days, he did not. And literally one or two days prior to the anniversary, in which I thought, I've got an incredible story, and I don't know what to do with it, his secretary called me and said, Tom just noticed your letter had been sitting on his desk or whatever, and he wants to run the story. And I was extremely excited to say the least. And um, the story was like a sensation. I, I still don't know if I've ever received as much feedback. No, I have, but it's one of the stories, one of the, one of the stories I've received the most feedback to of my entire life. I was just absolutely inundated with feedback from people and it was really fun and really exciting. I had phone calls from like NPR wanted to, to interview these women and different people. They did a segment on, um, all things considered about it. It was, it was, it was a really fun story. And the cool thing about it is that, um, I have stayed in contact with the Dunbar family and every like once a year or so I'll send in a check-in email. And again, this is, comes back to your question about meeting people in Switzerland. And this is really how I like to, to operate as a, as a writer is that I don't like to just, um, interview people for 15 minutes and then that's it. I never talk to them again. I like to maintain relationships with people and it's been fun to maintain friendship with the Dunbar family over the years. And once a year or so we would exchange emails and I'd get some correspondence about Jacob to find out how was Jacob doing. And, you know, at the time that I first you know, met them, Jacob was in junior high school and um, then he got a scholarship to college. He played at the university of Virginia and now he plays in futures events and has a ranking of 852. And it's just been really fun to, to stay in touch with that family. And I used to stay in touch with Gene Hepner too, but I haven't heard from her in a long time. How does it, it? It's all just amazing, and I I feel a little less proud of myself knowing that you got so much feedback for this. I was hoping I was like the the hipster tennis journalism fan, the only one who really noticed your piece. But I guess that's too much to hope for. Um, the one thing that I mean, one of many things I should say that that one of the great details that you, you dug up there is that uh, the umpire gave a time violation warning after that point. It, it, is that something you could you could really verify? Oh my gosh, you're you're really challenging me here. I do not remember that. I do not remember that detail at all. This is remember this is 2009, so we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, just, I just read I it for the fifth that. time yesterday. Keep up, Dave. I do I do not remember that. Can you refresh my memory? There was a time violation warning. I don't remember that. That is so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think there's much more to it than that. Just that. You know, that after the point one or both of them collapsed with cramps and uh, <laughs> and the umpire gave whichever one was more collapsed i guess i don't remember who that was but the umpire gave one of them a time violation warning and it's it's funny you don't really think about that in in historical tennis it's such a current story that you know, that that the the tours are tightening up the time frame between points and encouraging umpires yeah. to give more warnings. I realize there's probably a time that like these very officious British umpires were giving them out all the time, but you don't really think of it as something that happens in 1984. Yeah. And here it is in the middle of this other totally unrelated, fascinating stories. Like, oh yeah, and and this umpire decided to be a total jerk after 643 shots. Oh my gosh, that's really funny. You know, the women too, the really fun thing about reporting that story too is how sheepish both of them were about it. They really, they 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 were almost slightly embarrassed about about it because they, they realized that they were lobbing each other and that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the highest quality tennis, but there was something, you know, strangely compelling about it and their, their endurance of staying out there for, for that long and their determination to win really using any any sort of tactics are amazing. But looking back on it, it's just amazing that we have no video of this. We have no photographs taken that we, you know, there was no photographs of the match either. It was just such an, such an obscure event. And it's a record that, you know, we talk about unbreakable records. Um, the Isner Mahout is certainly, you know, I think an unbreakable record, but this one is one that I think we can all say will never, ever happen again. Half of it. There'll never be a 300 shot rally again. I don't think. Yeah, probably not. There was one that was either a hundred or close to it in a Davis Cup tie a couple of years ago, but it was obviously just two guys slicing back and forth with each other to warm up. So, I mean, even even that, I feel like the 53-shot rally that got you started on this thing was is about the upper end of what we can expect these days. Yeah, I will say there was a guy who contacted me who was the father of a, of a, of a female tennis player whose name is escaping me. Her first name was Julia. What was her last name? I can't think of it, but he contacted me after that story happened. And he claimed that he played tennis at the University of Pennsylvania 
And I believe he said he had a, like a, a rally that was more, it was 1300 shots or something like that. And he claimed that he had a videotape of it on VHS, which he was going to send me and he never did. So I, I don't know if he made it up or not, but there was, there is someone who claims that he broke that record. But again, that would have been, even if he really did do that would have been a collegiate um, tennis point. I think he said it was in the 1960s or seventies or something like that. Yeah, I feel like he probably taped over that video with some UFO footage, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's so much good stuff in the, the history of women's tennis that, I mean, not just women's tennis, but I've, I've been doing a lot of digging into women's tennis lately, too, that it's some, some really tempting details sneak into the news coverage. And I mean, I never would have stumbled on this in the reading the Richmond Times Dispatch or whatever from 1984, but you stumble on some things. Like there are hundred stroke rallies with Yvonne Gulagong or something that, that crop up yes. in the news or matches that took only 22 minutes or matches that took four hours and 11 minutes or something. But I mean, the records are so spotty that you can't even really build a database of what's out there. So it just does rely oh, the, on this. this the IT, of, like... Yeah, the ITF records are even spottier. You mentioned that in my Federer journey, I, I, I met with a former Davis Cup player from Liechtenstein. Now there's another person from the world of tennis who I wrote a story about and then remained friends with. Now this guy, uh, what the, that story was is that I, I read in the in the record books many years ago that the young, about the youngest and oldest players in Davis Cup history. And when I read that the oldest player in Davis Cup history, at, the, at least at the time that I first tackled the story, was 60 years old and he was from Togo, I thought I've got to meet this person. I have to find this guy. Who who is it that played Davis Cup at age 60? And then, of course, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I wanted to meet there's like three or four different guys who played when they were 13 and 14 years old. And I said, I want to meet the 13 year olds and I want to meet the 60 year old. <laughs> and I want to write about them. Kenny Banzer, who I met on who I met up with on my Switzerland trip in Liechtenstein, I still stay in touch with. He was the youngest player to play for in Davis Cup history, but his record was broken recently, a year or two ago. And I wrote a follow up about this, too, by a guy from San Marino. And the gentleman from Togo who played at 60, his record was broken also by a guy from San Marino. And the two guys who previously hold the record are not very happy about the fact that these guys from San Marino broke their record. And I, I just love those guys. Davis Cup is full of all kinds of weird and unusual records. Yeah, I, 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 I caught that reference in your book and, and read that story this afternoon as well. And one of the one of the great lines from I think it was the the 13 year old who broke the record. He he said that here in San Marino, we have a lot of opportunities to break records or set records. And yeah. I, I guess in a small country like that, that's that's definitely true. There's not a lot of people clamoring to be on the Davis Cup team. No, and even more so in you know in Togo, for example. I mean, the gentleman who who was previously the oldest to to play uh, Davis Cup. The ITF had first of all spelled his name wrong, and also transposed. It was extremely difficult for me to find him because they had his name transposed, meaning first name. They had his last name as first name and, and vice versa, and they also had it spelled completely wrong. So it was just an incredible odyssey. I spent months just trying to track him down. That was probably one of the most least as a freelance writer, you're sort of like an entrepreneur. You invest in stories thinking that hopefully they'll pay off and you'll you'll be able to sell it somewhere and make X amount of money. That was probably the least profitable story I've ever written in my life because I cannot tell you how many hours I devoted to tracking down this 60 year old tennis player from Togo and what a tremendous okay. sense of accomplishment it was when I found him. Well, given the return on investment I got from asking you about uh, about Vicky Nelson Dunbar and, and your your quest to track those two ladies down, I have to ask, like, how, how did you track this guy down? The guy from Togo, yes. So the yeah. interesting thing was I was calling all kinds of tennis clubs and hotels in Togo, right? And you imagine like what the phone lines were like. This was back in, I don't know, 2009, 2010 in that range where I don't even think we had, I think I was using Skype or whatever, but it was so sketchy. I'd be calling tennis clubs in Togo, of which there's not very many. And it was like, I felt like I was talking to someone in outer space, like the connections were so bad and the language barrier was so bad. I do not speak French. So it's like kind of like me shouting at people in Togo. And they were like, what? I mean, they'd never, I, I just assumed that you could call a tennis club in Togo and they'd all be like, oh, the guy's name is, um, is Yaka is his nickname. You could just say Yaka and everybody in the tennis world of Togo would know, oh yeah, Yaka, he set our record. No one had ever heard of this guy in Togo. My God, I'd called everyone in Togo and no one had ever heard of him, right? And I'd sort of just given up on the quest. And then one day I was looking through my Facebook feed. Now I told you I was in the foreign service. So I have a lot of friends who, um, former colleagues who work in different embassies all around the world. And one day I saw a posting from a friend of mine who I had known 
you know, from the Foreign Service. And I said, she's just arrived in a new post. And I clicked on her profile to see where is her new post. Aha, she works at the embassy in Togo. So I thought, oh, what the hell? Let me ask her about this tennis player, Yaka, and see if she's ever heard of him, right? It was a total just shot in the absolute dark. And this is after I'd already given up every call, talked to every tennis coach, every tennis club in the whole country of Togo, and struck out. I thought, what the hell? I'm going to email her and say hello and say, hey, by the way, you don't happen to know this 60-year-old guy who played tennis there, do you? And she emails back their most remarkable email. She says, you're not going to believe this, but he actually worked here at the embassy. But she said, I, but I'm not positive it's the same person because the spelling I was giving her was completely wrong and it was transposed. So I thought his first name was his last name and vice versa. She's like, if we're talking about the same person, he just retired. He worked here at the embassy. I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So that is how I found him. And indeed, it was him. And by the time that I had reached him, he had just retired and he had moved to the United States where he was working in a post office in Maryland. So here I was spending weeks calling tennis clubs in Togo. And the guy was working at a post office in Germantown, Maryland. That's amazing. And he's, is he still playing tennis? Or was yes, he when yes, you talked to him? Yes. That's... Yes, you can see a photograph of him in the story I did about that in the New York Times if you, if you Google it. Yeah. It's on my website, too. If you go on to DaveSeminar.com and navigate under tennis, you'll find that story in there. That is that is amazing stuff. I mean, I, I I'm doing a little bit of historical digging to you know, fill in the women's tennis database uh, or fill in women's historical records, and I go to maybe two or three Google searches. Uh, I mean, I'm doing them at higher volume than you, so I have an excuse. But um, but there is a, there's no rabbit hole too deep. It sounds like right. No. So when you ask you asked earlier in our interview, how did I find all these different people in Switzerland? Well, these are the research techniques that I use. I I pull out all of the stops. So message any listeners who might be trying to hide from Dave Seminara. Uh, don't just no. give up now. Uh, okay. So you mentioned your website, which I might've forgotten to, to mention at the outset, daveseminara.com. Um, you've written so much great stuff. I, I started clicking around on all your travel articles and previous tennis articles. And, and I mean, so many fascinating stories that you've, you've dug up. And of course, we've already talked about Footsteps of Federer, your new book. Mm -hmm. And Remarkably, you have two books coming out this year. There's another one coming this summer yes. in June, I think. Um, and yep. that's called Mad Travelers, A Tale of Wanderlust, Greed, and the Quest to Reach the End of the Earth. And unfortunately, this is not about tennis. So, I mean, we'll have to forgive you for this one transgression. But I am, as a, a fellow travel junkie, I, I've got to hear more about this. So tell me about this new book. Yeah, thank you so much for asking the question. So this book has been several years in the making. Around about 2014 or 2015, I started writing a series for BBC called uh, Travel Pioneers. And with this series, I got to meet some of the world's most traveled people. And by that, I mean, I don't know if many of your real reader or listeners might know this, but there are a number of different travel clubs around the world where people sort of, I call them country collectors, but they're people who are counting the number of countries they have been to and they seek to um, not just visit all of the 193 countries around the world that the UN recognizes as sovereign nations, but also to visit um, every province of every major country and every island and all of these really remote and difficult to get to places. So I started to meet all of these really super interesting, what they call extreme travelers or country collectors. And as I was doing this, I realized, okay, first of all, I want to write a book about wanderlust and about extreme travel because I have been addicted to travel my whole life. And I wanted to find out and sort of really explore deep questions about travel and wanderlust, such as why are some of us compelled to travel, why other people are content to stay home. And as this was happening, I got to know these guys profiling them, these extreme travelers over a period of a few years. While this was happening, um, I put together a pitch to make a, a television program about this, to make a television documentary about these extreme travelers. And this was, I sold the idea to a production company and they were trying to sell it to the networks. But the feedback that we got was that your travelers are all too old and they're not the right demographic that television networks want. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's interesting. So how could we make it a little bit younger? And they said, well, there's this guy named William Bakeland and he's a billionaire. And I said, wait a minute, let me stop you there. Did you say billionaire? And they said, yeah, he's, he's 23 years old, but he's a billionaire. He's the heir to this incredible fortune and he's been everywhere. And he's like sort of the travel, extreme travel fixer. He's the guy who's getting us to all these crazy, obscure, weird places. And I thought, William Bakelin is his name. Oh, that's really interesting. I have to meet him. So I tried to get him on the television show, which never happened, although I pursued him and corresponded with him for years. And long story short, it turned out that this guy was not a billionaire at all. In fact, he came from a working class area of the UK, did not have very much money at all. 
and he was a um, a con artist, for lack of a better phrase. And he bilked some of the world's most traveled people out of upwards of, from their claim, uh, like nearly $1 million. So Mad Travelers is a story um, of these mad travelers. And it's a, sort of a deep exploration of wanderlust that's built around this incredible con involving William Bakeland, where he was aspiring to, and in some cases, taking these extreme travelers to the planet's most forbidden and off-limits places until his story completely unraveled. So what what are some of these places? Like I think you mentioned Bouvet Island, um, mm-hmm. but what are yep. which is known by Norway, by the way? Yeah, what what are these places that are impossible to get to without the help of a con artist who promises yes. to get you there? So yeah, these are places that you cannot go onto Expedia or Costco Travel and book a ticket to because there's no regular ferry service or plane service. So for example, uh, one of the places is like you mentioned, Bouvet Island. Bouvet Island is considered the world's most uh, remote island. It is owned by Norway. No one lives there. It's essentially just a gigantic, huge rock, but it's extremely difficult to get to. And for these extreme travelers, you cannot just uh, see the island or see the place. You have to actually stand on the ground of it. So you have some of these guys that endeavored to, by boat, get to this island, which takes days in the South Atlantic Ocean to get to, days of sailing. But the waters are so rough that you can't land there. I have a few travelers who went there twice, who spent a tremendous amount of money, went on these tremendous journeys, but the weather is so bad there and the waves are so rough that they were, the boats were actually not able to land. So this was this Bouvet Island is sort of like the holy grail of extreme country collectors because it's the world's most remote island. And it's also one of the most difficult to get to places. But there are you know many others around the world too. And once travel collectors, I'm sorry, country collectors start ticking off their list of places to get to, um, it gets more and more difficult to find boats and to find charter planes to get to these places. And that's where William Bakeland sort of stepped into the void. He presented himself as this. Um, is this billionaire who had lots of time on his hands because he'd inherited this tremendous amount of money from this plastics fortune. And he had an interest in getting to these obscure places as well, too. So he, he, he made it to be as though it wasn't a business, that he was just doing this, that he was one of their kind and that it wasn't about money. And he was pulling off a number of incredible trips. He was getting these guys initially to some incredible places. So everyone believed in him and he developed like a cult following where it was like, if no one else can get us there, William can get us there. He can find a way. And he was finding ways. And he was bringing people to also very dangerous places too, like Somalia and the Central African Republic and Afghanistan and other places, Syria. Um, so it was, it was very remote and hard to get to places and also off limits places, places like the Gaza Strip. Um, he was sort of ingenious in finding ways to get permissions to places until his story started to slowly unravel. And I don't want to give away everything from the book, but let's just say, suffice it to say that William Bakelin was not even his real name. And he definitely was not, was not a billionaire. Um, so I think also too, the book comes out in this summer, but there's going to be a documentary. HBO has a documentary that's going to be coming out in April or May, um, which is also, which is called Bakeland. And so if you're interested in the book and the story, um, that might whet your appetite for it by checking that out. Oh, super cool. Um, I will def at least, me personally, I will definitely be doing that. What is the, so you said there, there's 193 like officially recognized sovereign yes. nations and there's this like super deep list of territories and provinces yes. and so on that the, the, the real hardcore collectors do. How long is that list? Well, there's multiple different lists. That's the other confusing and interesting thing too, is there's different clubs and different rankings. One of them is called most traveled people and most traveled people, at least last time I checked, the acronym is MTP, but if you go that, you can find their website. I believe their list is, let's say, eight or 900, but they keep changing it. They're, they're, these lists are evolving, too. That's the other interesting. They add places to these lists all the time. So a guy thinks, oh my gosh, I've only got 10 places left, and then oops, then they go ahead and add two places. Or a country changes their divisions, their subdivisions. So for example, um, when a country decides to add a new province, then all of a sudden, boom, you gotta go to another place. Or when a country changes their name, so if you went to the country, you know, when it was, you know, just Sudan, but now, oh, now there's South Sudan. Well, you got to go back. And same thing with Macedonia. Like I used to live in Macedonia. Now Macedonia is now called North Macedonia. Huh? Got to go back. So the lists are sort of ever evolving. Most traveled people, the list is, you know, eight, nine hundred people strong. But then there's another club called Nomad Mania, which that list is well over a thousand places. So these are for super advanced travelers who 
Um, they don't just want to get to every country, but they want to get everywhere. And so I'm sort of that sort of travel addict as well, too, although I'm not systematic with it and I don't have enough money to, you know, to be near rank at the top of those clubs. So I was really interested in the story from like a perspective of travel addiction in terms of like extreme wanderlust and understanding more about wanderlust and what compels people to want to go to the Bouvet Islands of the world. Because these are not vacations. These trips that these guys take, it's not it's not relaxing. It's not it's not it, you know, I'm not going to say it's not fun, but it's difficult. They endure tremendous hardships getting to these places. So let's circle back for one last question. If yeah. you're going to do all this travel, I'm sure you've got a lot of pent up travel desire uh, once the, the lockdowns end and you're allowed to leave or allowed to enter. I guess you're allowed to leave now, but <laughs> it'd be tough having anywhere that would take you when you landed. Um, if, if you were to have the opportunity to do another another tennis themed travel book, like a, I guess I already suggested Footsteps of Federer fans, but we'll take that one off the table. Uh, what, what would your next tennis travel quest be? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I'm going to have to think about that more. Let me think about that. Well, you know, one thing that I would be interested in doing is visiting some of the world's most remote and obscure tennis courts and playing playing on some of the world's most remote and obscure tennis courts or also maybe the world's most beautiful tennis courts. Um, I would love to play tennis in very unusual places. I would love to play tennis on all seven continents. Uh, is there a tennis court in Antarctica? I don't know. Um, if there is, I'd like to do it. I'd like to do what Tony Hawks did and challenge an entire uh, country's uh, soccer team to play tennis. And I maybe I could I could write a sequel to his book about Moldova. Now that I'm playing better tennis, I've come back. Maybe I could challenge the Moldovans to play tennis or find some other hapless country and challenge their players to play. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it sounds like you just combine those ideas. You go play at those eight tennis courts in San Marino. You take on the 13-year-old. You take on the 67-year-old. And boom, it all it all converges. I, hey, by the way, I did visit the, the, I, you know, when I wrote about San Marino and their Davis Cup players, I was actually doing that from the U.S. But a couple of years ago, I did visit the uh, the main tennis club of San Marino. And actually, if anyone is ever in Italy and also wants to San Marino is a beautiful little another beautiful, tiny little micro state um, that has these beautiful citadels. And there's a wonderful tennis club. And again, San Marino is very touristy and not cheap at all. But there is a wonderful, beautiful tennis club right below the old town, which you would never in a million years stumble across unless you were headed there purposely. And again, the food is very good and also inexpensive. So tennis is the solution to everything. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that. So tennis is the solution to everything. The, the wise words of Dave Sabinara. Uh, Dave's new book, Footsteps of Federer, A Fan's Pilgrimage Across Seven Swiss Cantons in Ten Acts, is coming out on Tuesday. You all should buy it and read it. I enjoyed it and would recommend it to any tennis fan. And of course, check out his website, davesamanera.com and watch for the documentary and book Mad Travelers coming later in the year. So Dave, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you very much. And thanks everyone for listening. This has been episode 96 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. We will see you again soon.